Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day through a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. If I sound like I'm in far too good of a mood for these dark times, I think it may have something to do with the fact that this past weekend, my family got a six-week-old golden doodle puppy who we've named Gautier, or Potsticker, and it's pretty much impossible to be sad with that little guy in our lives. As we say around here, pup trumps hate. So joining me from a converted moonshine still out in Gold Corn Holler in the backwoods of Tennessee is the outlaw country balladeer known as Dean Yumi. Greet the listeners, Dar Jeremy, and tell me how you've been. <laughs> hey, Kaiser. Very, I'm doing very well. I mean, I'd just like to note that the, the fact that you've got this golden doodle uh, dog um, does indicate a, you know, a certain problem with the uh, liberal element of American society. I mean, this is why we have Trump. It's because you're golden doodle. Because we retreat. <laughs> into yeah, the, the solace of into puppies. Strangely, strangely uncool dog breeds. Anyway. It's an incredibly cool dog breed. Anyway, you, you'll, you'll see. You'll meet him and you will be convinced. Jumping right in here, though. Uh, Chinese science fiction has garnered a fair bit of attention in the last couple of years, especially since science fiction's prestigious Hugo Award was given last year to Liu Cixin, the writer who's best known for his hard sci-fi trilogy Three Body, which is technically more correctly known as A Remember of Earth's Past. Not sure whether that's a Proust reference or not, but uh, this year, another work of Chinese science fiction won a Hugo as well, this one for Best Novelette. It was Hao Jingfang's Folding Beijing. What do these two Hugo-winning works have in common? For one thing, they were both translated into English by the same person who is himself a Hugo winner, as well as the winner of the other big one in the science fiction world, The Nebula. That individual was, of course, Ken Liu, and we're absolutely delighted to be joined today by Ken to talk about his translations of these and other sci-fi works about Chinese science fiction more generally, and, of course, about his own prolific career as a writer of sci-fi and fantasy. Ken Liu, welcome to Seneca. Thanks for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. Ken, could you give us a quick biography? You're from Lanzhou originally, yes, and you came to the U.S. at age 11, if I remember correctly. Uh, right. So I am a writer and a translator and a programmer and a lawyer. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, there's not much to say, really. I prefer to let my work speak rather than my life. Uh, and so, yes, I've had these uh, very different careers altogether. Uh, I've published over 130 short stories and novelettes and novellas by this point. Uh, and I also have two novels out. 
And I just recently this year put out uh, my first collection of short fiction called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. That one features The Paper Menagerie, which I think is the story that a lot of people know me by uh, because it won a bunch of awards. These days, I'm more of a novelist. And so I have two novels out in a uh, epic fantasy series uh, called The Dandelion Dynasty, and the two books are called The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about both those books. Those are terrific. I mean, I've just started reading The Grace of Kings right now, uh, and it's come to be very, very highly recommended. But let's uh, before we get into that, let's let's focus right now on on three body, uh, which you know it's because this is a show about China, we're going to make that the, the primary focus. Let's try to give. I know, I know that you know you are not uh, you know by your own admission you are not some kind of an expert in Chinese science fiction, uh, and, and I know you even have misgivings about the idea that there is something that you can you know call Chinese science fiction. But let's talk about three body. I mean, because it has become a phenomenal popular success in China. Give our listeners a sense for how crazy popular it has actually become. Well, to give you some context on this, uh, science fiction um, in China is considered a very distinct genre from fantasy. Uh, so in the West, we speak of science fiction and fantasy as though it's one big thing. That's not how they're viewed uh, in China. Science we, fiction. We, we do now. We never used to. That's a relatively recent phenomenon, though. I that that is that is correct. Uh, in China, they're not viewed as uh, even remotely the same thing. Uh, so, science fiction is a very distinct thing all by itself. And so, usually, science fiction novels and even short stories don't really get that much of a readership compared to the size of uh, China's population or its reading market. Uh, Three Body, however, is somewhat of an anomaly in that after the third book came out, it achieved incredible success. I believe over a million copies have been sold. And I'm not sure if that's of the entire set or, or all the books individually. But in any event, it's definitely a bestseller by any measure. And mo- most amazingly, it achieved a lot of success outside of the core sci-fi reading niche market. It's being talked about in mainstream press articles. The author of this scene gets invited to all kinds of publicity events and just general interest programs on TV uh, and on the radio. And uh, shows up in Beijing all the time to attend interesting events where he talks with other literary luminaries and sometimes entrepreneurs. Uh, that's actually one of the interesting things, which is that Three Body became popular, I believe, largely because it achieved a level of success among uh, internet entrepreneurs that it, no other science fiction novel has done. And, and that's somewhat ironic because Three Body itself is a very in some ways, a very traditional science fiction novel. It's about humanity's romance with the stars. It starts out in the Cultural Revolution about a secret project by the Chinese military to establish contact with aliens in competition with the Soviet Union and the United States uh, during the Cold War. However, the story soon morphs into an actual alien invasion story. And uh, unlike a lot of space opera, this one spans multiple centuries because the alien ships actually travel at sublight speeds, and, and so it takes that long to get here. Right. Uh, and so the three novels gradually expand out from the setup of alien invasion into a meditation on humanity's place in the galaxy and the, in the universe at large. And the scope of the novels in the trilogy grow bigger and bigger. And uh, after starting with this alien invasion plot, by the third book, it turns into this massive 
uh, work of imagination that literally takes us from the beginning of the universe to the end of the universe. Well, don't uh, spoil that for me. I'm still, I've just now finished The Dark Forest, so I still haven't read Earth's End. So no spoilers there, at least for me. Sure. Do what you want to the audience. So, Ken, has the popularity of three-body made science fiction more appealing to a, a broader Chinese reading public? Um, I'm not sure you can really say that. I mean, you can. You, the same question can be asked, has Star Wars made science fiction more appealing to the U.S. Uh, audience? And I think if you ask 100 different American readers, you get 100 different answers. No, I think you I think get that's mostly the, yes. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Okay. I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider uh, Star Wars even science fiction. So the question of whether science fiction is more popular is, is a difficult question to, to answer. Um, okay. So in China, it's the same thing. I, I, I don't think you can really say that. I think it depends on who you ask and what market you measure. I mean, by one measure, right, you can, you can look at the popular works that are being put out there. Uh, science fiction tropes are permeating all kinds of literary genres uh, in China as it is here. So the popularity of Three Body could arguably be said to generate a lot of interest in sci-fi insofar as I think there's now a lot of public attention on the idea of sci-fi and there's a lot more coverage of sci-fi in general. And so a lot of it, however, is very much focused on Three Body and all the, the movie adaptation and the musical and all the other media sort of uh, translations of it, if you will. Well, I was, um, I was aware of a movie adaptation of it that's supposed to come out in 2017 that actually Lutzin himself is producing. But what's this musical? There's a musical? Well, I, I want to clarify that. I, I don't think you can say Liu Cixing is, is producing it. Liu Cixing's name as an executive producer, uh, okay. exactly how involved he is with the movie is, is not something that people are clear about. And I, I don't think he's ever given the impression that he is uh, very deeply involved with it. Uh, but there is a cool musical. Uh, it's a Broadway-style musical with lots of special effects, uh, awesome dancing, singing, and so on and so forth. And uh, I believe the show was put out in Shanghai and Beijing, and it's very popular. Uh, I have not seen it myself, except for some photos uh, taken by audience members who have attended. But every single person I've talked to who had seen it uh, said that it's uh, phenomenal, amazing. Uh, oh, wow. And I, I think that's very cool uh, in, that, in that China you know, is, is able to do a lot of interesting things with sci-fi IP uh, that sometimes we don't really think of as uh, even natural media for sci-fi, like a musical. <laughs> Who would have thought? I certainly wouldn't have. And, and same, uh, similarly, there's apparently uh, a Ping Shu version of uh, Three Body. Basically, this is a traditional Chinese uh, storytelling art where a storyteller gets up and tries to perform basically a classic for you by taking on voices, creating characters, offering some commentary, uh, so on and so forth. And, and occasionally, uh, you know, the, the storytellers also tell stories based on contemporary works. And Three Body apparently is one of those. Wow. Um, which, again, I would not have thought would be a, a natural medium for it. But, you know, it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ken, what would you ascribe this popularity? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, maybe it got kicked off by the fact that some internet entrepreneurs uh, became fans of, uh, of the work. But do you have any idea why this has found uh, such a hold on the Chinese public imagination, whereas previous science fiction works remained very much minority tastes? Uh, well, I can offer lots of theories. The most plausible theory is probably because it's simply a better work. Three Body is, in my opinion, uh, the best 
work of hard sci-fi to come out of China uh, ever. So there's no real surprise if you believe that quality is directly correlated with popularity and that the market is rational. Then why this work would be successful? Of course,、uh, you know I, I think if you talk to the readers, many of whom do not even、uh, have not read sci-fi before approaching this work, they would tell you that it's it's incredible in terms of this imagination.、Uh, it、uh, offers this humanity's romance with the stars offers a vision that is. Simply awe-inspiring. It, it really goes back to the roots of science fiction with that sense of wonder that just overpowers you as you read it. I mean, I don't know how how you guys feel, but、uh, when I read it the first time, I was uh, absolutely uh, astounded. Yeah, I, I was a big fan. I was captivated right away by it.、Uh, Three Body, for for all its popularity in China, it was certainly the first Chinese science fiction to have made any kind of a splash、uh, among English language sci-fi aficionados, right? Right, yeah, right. And, but th- there was there was some controversy though surrounding the decision to give the Hugo Award to it.、Uh, there was some kind of like GamerGate style attacks on what people thought was sort of a, a diversity decision. You know, just deliberately giving it to a Chinese writer, irrespective of merits.、Uh, were you involved at all in that? Did you did you watch that happen?、Uh- Uh, uh, this is a difficult question to answer because "involved" is is a hard word to parse.、Uh, sure. I will say that、um, the the thing you're referring to is called Puppygate. Basically, different people would have different definitions for what happened. I would say that basically two groups who name themselves the Rabbit Puppies and the Sad Puppies、uh, decided that the awards. The science fiction awards, especially the Hugo's, in recent years,、um, were not given to the types of works they enjoyed, and they decided to participate and、uh, in the nomination process and later on the voting process by voting as a block to get the works that they preferred onto the ballot and then to try to get them、uh, an award. That's. Perhaps a more neutral way of describing it than many people would like, because in fact、uh, these two groups are not motivated solely by aesthetic considerations.、Uh, there is a strong dose of politics behind their work as well.、Um, as you mentioned, one of the at least one of the groups, the Rabbit Puppies,、uh, were very much tied with Gamergate、uh, and later on、uh, with the so-called alt-right movement in the U.S. So they obviously have a specific political agenda as to the sort of authors and the sort of stories they wanted to champion,、uh, and the way they gained the electoral process to achieve the result they wanted. But big picture wise, they somewhat succeeded in the nomination stage and managed to dominate the ballot in several categories,、mm-hmm. but not in the novel category. Three Body, among other works, managed to make it onto the ballot despite the disruption of these groups. And, and and I will give full disclosure、uh, in that one of my works、uh, was squeezed off the ballot by this effort, and so I'm not a neutral observer, and I don't pretend to be.、Uh, right. the, these people did squeeze me off, and I will I will say that. Although I don't I don't think what I'm saying here is particularly controversial. Even they would probably agree with much of the characterization here. And then later on during the voting stage, there was some controversy, as you put it, over just whether. People were voting th- three body out of some sort of political consideration. I, I have no idea.、Uh, I don't right, right, right. pretend to know what voters、uh, know, and、uh, I certainly did no campaigning for it. 
Okay. Uh, well, let's move on. I mean, that, that's that's really not of such terrific consequence to our listeners who are interested in China. What was interesting, I thought, was that I mean, I I'm probably the last person who sort of watches China carefully to have actually read Three Body, and I've admitted already on this show that I actually read it in English translation. I don't regret that at all. I think if there are people listening who haven't read the book yet or have only read it in the original Chinese. I would still suggest that they check out the translation. I mean, to me, there are there are translators whose work is 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 so good that it might. I mean, I suspect sometimes that it might even supersede the original. I mean, I definitely feel that way sometimes when I read like a William Weaver translation of Umberto Eco or of Italo Calvino. But I think I'm not alone in having praised your work on on Three Body. It's it's excellent. How did you get started in doing translation? I mean, are you somebody who was formally trained in it, or is that something that just sort of came naturally to you from your your boyhood familiarity with Chinese? Uh, right. Thanks. Uh, so I had zero interest in translation for most of my career. That was not something I was interested in doing, or wanted to do, or even thought of doing. Uh, so it started by accident, really. Uh, my friend uh, Chen Qiufan, who is also a phenomenal science fiction writer in China. Yeah, he's uh, been a guest on our show. Yeah, great, great. Yes, that's right, uh, Stan. Uh, he had one of his stories translated into English, and he asked me to take a look at the translation to see what I thought of it. And I read it, and I, I told him, "Look, you know, I think the translation is faithful, but uh, it, it doesn't really capture your voice. It doesn't read like a literary translation. It reads like a, a legal translation, or, or you know, some sort of functional translation. It doesn't really capture your voice at all, and it doesn't flow like a a, a literary fiction piece ought." So I offered to make some edits to the translation, and he said, "Sure, that's fine." Uh, I said, "Well, I have no translation experience, so you know, I'm just going by my instincts as a writer, uh, and as a friend, and as a fan of your work." Uh, and he said, that, "That's fine. You know, I trust you." So I started doing the edits,、uh, and then I realized that it's it's actually easier if I just started from scratch rather than trying to work、mm. off of a translation that wasn't done by me, and it just felt like struggling against something. That was far more trouble than it was worth. So I I threw away the old translation and I just started from scratch and I did the translation and that story, the fish of Li Jiang, ended up being the first translation Clark's World, a、uh, very prominent online sci-fi magazine in the U.S.、Uh, bought, and it actually won a couple of awards、uh, and got selected from year for some year's best anthologies. And so after that, I said, oh, you know, it's kind of、uh, cool because. I've been reading all these wonderful pieces of short sci-fi coming out of China, and a lot of them, a lot of the writers will benefit from having more readers, and my fellow Anglophone readers will benefit from hearing new voices. And so it would be nice if I can do more of these. So I did it mainly as a as a fan activity. I just、uh, did a bunch of translations of、uh, of Chinese sci-fi into English, and a lot of them. Were published in in prominent magazines like、uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Interzone,、uh, Lightspeed, and so on. And they they did well.、Uh, readers liked them. A lot of them were picked up for award nominations and so on. And finally, this was after I'd done maybe thirty, forty of these. the The company that bought the foreign rights to Three Body came to me and said. Would you be interested in doing、uh, the novel? And I said, Oh, that would be amazing! It would be a huge honor. And and so that's basically how it happened. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I planned. It, it, it started really by accident. Ken, what do you think explains this popularity of Chinese science fiction outside of China? It's、uh, in recent years really the only 
fictional genre of Chinese writing that seems to have had a, a kind of popular appeal outside of China. Of course, Mo Yan won the Nobel Prize. But if I think of uh, literary works that have actually seized the imagination, even if, uh, you know, just of a, a portion of the Western reading public, it seems that science fiction has become that genre in the last couple of years. Um, let me be a little cautious about that. I, I think what you're seeing is the popularity of Chinese sci-fi really is just the popularity of Three Body, uh, the trilogy so far. We, we don't really have novels from other writers to, from China to, to say that there's any kind of pattern here. So I would say so far the success can almost entirely be attributed to the fact that Lizzie Xing's books are just really cool and people mm -hmm. like them. And uh, Three Bodies certainly has had more success than I think any other literary novel coming out of China. I mean, I, I don't have the statistics to back this up, but my understanding from reading sales numbers and, and such is that the Three Body Problem, the first book in the series, is by far the most popular, best-selling novel to come out of China since 1949. Wow. Uh, and wow. and that's pretty. That's a pretty cool accomplishment. I, I know that when Du Cixin was here as part of a delegation of Chinese writers, he had a signing line longer than anybody else. Uh, it was phenomenal. Tons, tons of readers, many of whom have no interest in Chinese literature at all lined up to get his signature because they loved The Three-Body Problem and the sequels. Did you get any kind of feedback from Liu himself about your translation? Is his English at any kind of a level where he might be able to appreciate what you did with that first volume? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Liu Cixing himself admits that he uh, considers himself to be writing in the tradition of uh, authors like Asimov and Clark. Sure. And, and so these are books that he, he loved. He read many of them in translation, but since not all of the books are translated, he reads some of them in the original English. So he certainly has enough uh, English proficiency to be able to help me with the translation. Uh, basically, the process involved me doing the draft and asking him questions in various places. I mean, translating something like The Three-Body Problem is particularly interesting because there are issues that I think are somewhat unique to translating sci-fi. When you do a hard sci-fi novel like The Three-Body Problem, one of the things uh, as the author you want to do is to try to stay on the forefront of contemporary research because you want to ground what you're doing in actual science, but at the same time project, uh, speculate into potential you know, wonders uh, that haven't been discovered yet. And so because the book was written in 2000, uh, I think it's 2006, 2008, somewhere around there, some of the research that it relied on by the time I was doing the translation had been superseded by later works. And so part of my job as a translator was to, you know, basically check these papers and see what new things have been done. And, and when there are new discoveries in the N-body problem or in celestial mechanics or in astrophysics, or in cosmology, I would uh, find the papers and, and uh, write to Liu Cixin and say, you know, here's, here's what's new. Do, do you think we should update the uh, novel in some way to reflect this? And, and we would discuss it. Uh, and then we made some changes here and there to reflect Ken, that. Uh, speaking of changes, uh, one thing that re differs radically from the Chinese original to your English translation is the order of the initial chapters. Can I ask what went into the decision to open with a cultural revolution vignette that has uh, no science fiction elements at all um, and is also a chapter that doesn't come until much 
later in the Chinese version.、Uh, no, that's not true. There is no such thing as the Chinese version、uh, like that.、Um, the, the, the fact is. Liu Cixin actually wrote the books the way the English author gives them. He presented the story chronologically originally. Now, when the book was published in China at the time, there was some sensitivity over the Cultural Revolution because I believe it was published in two thousand six, which is、um, anniversary, right? The anniversary of、uh, of the end of the Cultural Revolution. So there was some concern that by opening the book with the Cultural Revolution, there may be unnecessary political. Difficulty, and so Liu Cixin and his editor, I believe, made the decision to move the Cultural Revolution chapters into the middle of the book and present it as a flashback. I had no idea that was the case. I thought that you would, you know, the English publishers had made that decision because it would just be more grabby. <laughs> no, that's、uh, that that's actually not the case. Yeah, the the I I read the original Chinese and I said, well, you know, I I think it makes more sense to present the Cultural Revolution chapter at the beginning. And Liu Cixin, well, yeah, that's how I wanted it, so let's do it that way because that. My original vision. The 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 ordering the Chinese edition is、uh, is is done out of caution,、uh, and there's no need to do that for the English translation. So let's let's restore it to the way it was meant to be. And so that's what we did. Jeremy, wow, you remember that's that. interesting. We we mentioned Stanley Chen before.、Uh, one of the very first shows that we recorded back in 2010 was about science fiction in China. I I can't say that was one of our best, and I guess I've come to realize that the fault was in very large part with the questions that we asked. I mean, it's almost embarrassing now, Ken, having read the introduction to this latest collection of sci-fi that you've translated. This collection called Invisible Planets,、uh, because you know you kind of go after these assumptions that were actually, frankly, behind the questions that we 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 put to Stanley and to translator Joel Martinson in that long ago episode.、Uh, your point is very well taken. There's a huge diversity of voices and themes and approaches, and I know you you like to caveat what you say about your knowledge being limited and your your sample unrepresentative, but at the same time. You know, I mean, Jeremy, you've been watching a lot of Star Trek, right?、Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I know I I wouldn't want to generalize, but I think one could be forgiven for looking at American sci-fi and saying, well, this says quite a quite a bit about the American worldview, about you know America's sense of itself across different periods of history. So, are there themes or styles or assumptions about the future that are maybe so common to Chinese sci-fi that? Could be said to give it a distinct character.、Um, well, there are some for sure. I mean, again, I'm speaking as you know, sort of an outsider. I mean, I, I probably know more about Chinese science fiction than a lot of Westerners,、uh, but I don't claim to be an expert on this topic. I generally think that it's most fruitful to approach Chinese sci-fi on an individual basis because every author and every story seems to be. Very individually concerned with its specific topics, but there are some things that you can sort of generalize. I mean, you know, it's 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 definitely true, like like you say, that observing the sci-fi being written by society tells you not much about the future, but perhaps quite a bit about what you think the people who wrote those works were thinking about, and so、exactly. you can learn something about society that way. Um, so in Chinese sci-fi, I, I would say the following things are, are things that jumped out at me.、Um, I, I notice、uh, a recurrent、uh, sort of concern about inequality, about imbalance,、mm. and, and I think this is somewhat related to the fact that China has undergone a massive transformation in the last thirty years.、Uh, that's really unprecedented in human history.、Um, when I did my、uh, Anthology,、uh, the Invisible Planets anthology, which collects thirteen、um, of、uh, the sh- pieces of short fiction I've translated that I think are most interesting into one book. 
one of the things I, I wanted to focus on is the sense of imbalance. I, I said, you know, China in the West, you've gone from an agrarian economy to this modern information economy over a period of several hundred years. Uh, in China, however, this transformation is incomplete and basically got compressed into 30 years. And it, it's largely a phenomenon of, of recent times. And so what you end up with is the sense that people are living uh, with their feet in the 19th century while their heads are in the 21st century and beyond. So you have these huge contrasts all over the place. Right. Uh, you have these companies in, in Beijing and in Shanghai, which are doing the latest in virtual reality research. You know, Stan actually is, uh, is um, one of the founders of a company that does VR work on the cutting edge. Uh, you have people in internet companies uh, doing innovation uh, we're trying to catch up to in the West. A lot of the, the new features you see in messaging apps and in mobile apps are copied from Chinese innovation. It's, uh, and it's incredible to see the sort of stuff that's being done by Chinese scientists in genetic engineering and, and other areas of cutting-edge research. But Absolutely. if you just go yeah. a couple hundred miles outside of these cities... You, you, you go into these villages that have been essentially depopulated. Uh, all the young men and women have left to look for cheap, unskilled labor jobs in the cities. And they leave their children behind uh, to be raised by their grandparents. And these children grow up in houses built with the money sent back by their parents that, are, that look new and, and, and awesome. But you go inside and there are no toys, no books, no... Nothing, no, n nothing that shows it's a place that's lived in. Where that's, children that's, live, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that's real, other than a big blurring TV and grandparents who, are, uh, who, who, who don't know how to, how to take care of these kids in modern ways. And, and so this is a huge problem. Uh, and, 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 but it's a perfect dystopian environment in, in some ways. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I think the idea that China is somehow a dystopia is very common uh, in Western discourse, and I think it's very misleading and problematic. What, what I would say is that China is imbalanced. And so you have areas of the country that are like utopias. You, you go into these places and and if you have the right job and the right background, you're free to do whatever you want, pretty much. You, you, you get to play with cutting-edge ideas. You get to converse with folks across the globe. You get to take vacations in France and Japan whenever you want to. And, and everything seems like you're living the globalized elite life of, of, of borderless modernity. Right. So, uh, I mean, absolutely, imbalance is, is clear. I mean, just in the few science fiction works from China that I'm familiar with, it, it really does leap out as a theme. What, what are some of the other themes that you've identified that you think would be sort of more, you know, that are maybe genre conventions in, in Chinese sci-fi? Um, I, I wouldn't say they're genre conventions. I would say they're thematic concerns. I okay. mean, another, another concern that I, I, I think is pretty common in, in Chinese sci-fi is this... Uh, relentless optimism about, well, <laughs> perhaps that's overstating the case a, bit, a little bit, but there is a sense of optimism about the ability of humanity to come together to tackle big problems. I mean, Three Body is a perfect example of this. Uh, you know, the, the very idea that when faced with a crisis, the UN can actually play a positive role, that nations around the world will actually submit themselves to the jurisdiction of the UN and come together and to come up with a coordinated plan for how to deal with things and that China and the US will cooperate uh, and, and, and solve these problems. 
that kind of optimism about the potential for humanity to 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 put aside their differences and actually try to cooperate. Clearly, Marx is a book written ten years ago before Brexit and Trump. <laughs> May, maybe, but but it's uh, it's 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 not the sort of thing you see in the West. Uh, no. I mean, the West when you portray uh, when China is portrayed in in sci-fi, it's usually in, a, in an incredibly negative manner, uh, and so. I do want to caution that a little bit. It's not clear how much of this optimism is is there because the writers are really optimistic or whether it's because stories and discussions about potential conflict in the future, especially with the U.S., are simply not allowed. There is a lot of uh, censorship around the idea of presenting conflict with the U.S. I, I think this is somewhat... It's probably not surprising to your listeners, but it is surprising to many people who don't know China's politics well. They they think that China's government would probably encourage the sort of thinking that promotes conflict with the U.S. When the opposite is is true, the 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 government is extremely terrified, really, of nationalistic sentiments, and they they do a lot of censorship around the idea of promoting conflict with the West, especially the U.S. And so. It's not clear to me to what extent optimism I see in the sci-fi is is part of really people's belief that humanity really will come together as one global village, as as people put it, uh, or if it's a it's the result of the fact that stories that portray things otherwise just don't get published. Sure. So I, I guess many people would want to understand where Chinese sci-fi writers put China in the futures that they imagine, not just sort of as part of this global coming together to, to resolve problems. But I mean, in Three Body, you know, it is the Chinese who make first contact with the Trisolarans. It's a Chinese cop who basically shuts down the traitors to humankind, you know, who are on Earth, uh, you know, and who are, you know, calling for a Trisolaran extermination of humanity. Uh, there is a very significant Chinese protagonist named Luo Ji, who more or less saves Earth, at least for a while. Uh, so, uh, where where do you put China in your own science fiction? That's I'm not asking about uh, other people, but in you know the, the the many many science fiction short stories that you've written, uh, where where do you put China? And then I, I want to talk a little bit more about the Dandelion Dynasty in just a little bit because you know that is not science fiction; it's fantasy. But let's let's talk about in your science fiction works. I'm not sure I have a particular place for China. Uh, my science fiction is uh, very America-centric, and they're really very American stories. I'm not sure I thought much about China's future at all. That just doesn't seem to be something I have much control over or interest in. Okay. Um, I, I would say that most of my work sort of pictures humanity, uh, humanity's future within the context of, uh, of Americans' own complicated relationship to the present and to the future. And there's a lot of concern about American decline and about the, the sort of weakening of the American empire. I think a lot of my science fiction, if it addresses these political issues at all, tries to imagine how things are, can, be, can be positive uh, right, and, and right. how American faith and, and our resilience will make these issues not so fearful as people might think. I mean, in terms of the place of China for Chinese writers, I think what's interesting is is the extent to which most Chinese writers I've read who imagine a future for China try to imagine it as basically one country among many and still posits a future in which the U.S. is the leading power in the world. Even far into the future, I think a lot of these stories posit China as basically 
richer and more just and, and basically a better place than it is today. But the world is still dominated pretty much by the U.S. and by Europe. And in fact, if you read Three Body... Yeah, that's very much the case, yeah. You, you, you get that sense too. And, and I think that's pretty, uh, that's pretty interesting. And I, I think it's also fairly common. It is. It is very interesting. And I, I want to talk about more about China in the futures that are imagined by science fiction writers in the United States because, you know, China does figure in that. But let me, let me put something to you first. I mean, I, I had a conversation ahead of our, our chat with my brother, John, who is a very avid reader of sci-fi. And while he hasn't read all that much Chinese sci-fi, he, he, he's, he's come away from it with, with a sense that he's, he describes as grimness, a kind of intangible undercurrent of pessimism that he thinks is common to both Chinese and Russian sci-fi. Uh, and he points, you know, as an example of this to uh, The Dark Forest. And there's this deeply pessimistic conclusion that, that Liu Xin reaches, you know, which gives the the book, its title, no spoilers here, but, you know, Liu arrives at a kind of horrible theory about intelligent life in the universe and that it has a very likely fate in that he derives some kind of fucked up game theory idea. Right. You know what so, I'm talking about. So, that, so I let me talk about that a little bit. So I, I think, I think, okay, so let me give you the theoretical framework I'm talking about here. I think a lot of times what readers read out of a text uh, have more to do with what they put into it than what is in the text. Uh, so my, my big theory is that no two readers actually read the same text. Before we can unpack the meaning of, of a story, we must pack it first with our own assumptions and our beliefs about what the story is trying to say and our own beliefs about the state of the world before we decode it. So the three body series, especially the Dark Forest, have been read by different people to have very different meanings. My own reading of it, for example, is very, very different from the one you just described. I don't uh-huh. read it as a, as a grim story at all. I view I read it as a story of incredible hope and resilience in the in in the face of a world that is in fact hostile and uh, and, and negative. And Dostoevsky himself, I think, supports my reading when he wrote an essay explaining what he was trying to do. He said, look, science fiction is about playing thought experiments. And I never said that I believe this is actually how the universe works. I posit this theory out there uh, as a way to explore some thoughts about humanity. And what I want to say is... I imagined the worst of all possible universes. Right. But it is our duty to construct the best of all possible Earths. That's, that's you know, a message of hope. And it's optimism. very well put. I mean, I think my brother would agree with that, and I, I certainly would agree with that, but that is the most horrible of all possible universes that he's posited. Right, and he's saying that that's, that's what science fiction is good for. It's, it's, it's to give you, imagine, extreme scenarios so you can really see what is valuable. So let me give you an anecdote. So one of the things about uh, the Dark Forest is, you know, I mentioned before that entrepreneurs in China were very taken with it. And one of the reasons they were taken with it is because they love the dark forest theory. They didn't view it in the way that we're discussing it as some sort of philosophical commentary on the state of universe and men versus nature and, and all, all the rest of it. They viewed it as a fairly simple metaphor, a metaphorical, allegorical re telling for the internet ecosystem uh, in China right for internet companies how they compete with each other that (laughs) the idea is that internet companies are ruthless and the way you compete with your opponents is to drag them down to your level and do whatever you can and attack them before they even know that they're being attacked and they thought this was such an accurate description of the way ruthless competition works that they 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 said oh this is amazing and of course they presented this theory to Liu Cixin who was uh utterly baffled by this reading. I mean, 
uh, that that's reading just a is, stupid reading. I mean, that's, that, just, that, that's just wrong. <laughs> that reading is still very popular. And I, I talked yeah. to this and he was like, I have no idea what this is about. Uh, but but I think, you know, based on your assumptions and what you think is is uh, is relevant, you, you, you see that kind of pessimism in it. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily in the text. I view Liu Cixing as incredibly optimistic about human nature and the ability of humanity to uh, overcome uh, great challenges. Let me talk really quickly about the, the China in the futures imagined by American sci-fi writers. So maybe some of our listeners would be familiar with uh, a series called Zhongguo, which is spelled C-H-U-N-G-K-U-O by David Wingrove. Ken, have you read that? I have not. I've seen it when I was a kid, but I have not read it. Okay. I, I think I started reading it and uh, uh, I was uh, turned off by it, so I didn't read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. That's exactly what happened to me. Um, but there's there's also other ones. There's the one that I, I've picked up called The Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson. In yeah, which, I have know, read that. Yeah. Um, and then there's Guy Gabriel K. He has this sort of uh, retelling of the whole kind of Tang Ming Huang period before the Anglo-China Rebellion. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, you've read that one. Uh, were those maybe influences at all in, in some of your writing? Uh, well, by influences, meaning I want to do something different. Yes, I suppose. Okay, uh, negative influence. I, I, I generally don't want to talk much about uh, what other writers have done with China because okay. uh, I, I, have a, I, have a, uh, I have a deep belief in that uh, when writers talk about other writers, uh, it's almost never possible to really tease apart to what extent what they're saying is driven by self-interest versus... Uh, some sort of aesthetic consideration, and maybe we can't. Uh, I will say this. I'm generally turned off by presentations of China in science fiction or fantasy, uh, which is done from a a Western perspective. A lot of these uh, visions of China are basically projections of the writer's society's own fears and concerns and paranoia about China into something that is not, in fact, real. Or, you know, the alternative, sometimes the the, the China elements are added as bits of exotic exoticism uh, to to add some color. I'm not interested in either of those things. The Dandelion Dynasty was written uh, as a way to explore my love of engineering and my love of of foundational narratives. I, I, I believe societies all have foundational narratives that are stories. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about Dandelion uh, Dynasty? Maybe, you know, give us a, a sort of um, a summary of what it's about so we can understand those comments. Right, right. So the Dandelion Dynasty is what I call a silk punk epic fantasy. Uh, what it means is, uh, so imagine steampunk, right? Steampunk is sort of this fantasy science fiction hybrid based on the technology aesthetic of Victorian era England. And, and that's, that's a very rich area of history to mine because not only do you have a lot of interesting technology possibilities, you also have a lot of interesting ideas to play with about empire, about metropole and periphery, about colonialism. Uh, and class and race and so on. And you have interesting clothes. You also have interesting (laughs) clothes. Uh, It's it's more than top hats with goggles. I I certainly hope so. (laughs) Uh, And and so when when I do Silk Punk, uh, it's something similar. So it takes as its inspiration a technology aesthetic taken from the antiquity of classical East Asia. Um, And the way it tries to explore philosophies and ideas that are related to and inspired by dynastic China in, in the same way that steampunk explores Victorian England mores and, and ideas. And so here is a, a set of epic fantasy set in a world that's inspired by classical East Asia, but isn't a, a magical version of it. It's set in a set of islands, and there are competing factions for control of the islands. 
And uh, the trilogy is sort of a playing out of all the ideas about good government, about progress, about engineering, about what is the philosophical way to live a good life, and in a lot of ways to explore ideas both about what it means to have a Chinese vision of history, as well as what it means to have an American vision of history, because the silk punk aesthetic is sort of a melding of Western and Eastern ideals in a way that I feel um, resonates with epic traditions from across the world. Yeah, I've actually just picked up the first volume and uh, very, very, very excited to read it. My my brother John is a big fan. He assures me that I would love him, and I, I guess I would I would love them even more now, knowing that they're based on the Chuhan contention. Is is that That's correct? Right. They, That's they, right. Yeah. About, about Liu Bang and, and Xiaomi. The first book is sort of a reimagining of the Chuhan contention uh, using this fantastical, uh, allegorical um, setting. It's kind of like how the War of the Roses, uh, you know, can be read as, a, as the prototype for um, a Game of Thrones. Right. Uh, same, same sort of idea here. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. We are running out of time, unfortunately. So we and I know that you have got a hard stop. So uh, Ken, it has just been great having you on. Uh, thank you so much for for making the time. Uh, I think we can uh, count on meeting up one day to talk about the Grace of Kings, which I'm reading now. As you know, uh, I hope you'll stick around and make a recommendation with us for our listeners. Of course. Okay. It's well, a pleasure. Thank you. Before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app. And subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChinaNews and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChinaNews. If you like the Cynic Podcast, by all means, go and leave us a positive review at the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is you go to review apps. So thanks very much in advance. Recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So I'd like to recommend a series of comic books. I think there are two out so far called, in, called uh, Understanding China Through Comics by a guy named Liu Jing. They were originally published as e-books, but they're now out in print. And they're basically uh, comic books that uh, you know sketch the outlines of Chinese history. The first two volumes go from the Yellow Emperor all the way through to the Tang Dynasty. Uh, and if uh, you want a sort of easy introduction to the, the vast span of Chinese history, they're a lot of fun. Well, I will uh, look forward to those. I have them, actually. I was, I was lucky enough to have received copies of those. It sounds uh, really cool. Yeah, they're, they're great. They're really great. Published by Stonebridge Press, a, a small uh, uh, publishing house out of California. Oh, I know them. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. I know them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they do good work. Ken, why don't you go next? What do you have for us? Sure. I would recommend a book called Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. This is a book that's a, essentially a history of cooking implements and cooking methods and the way we consume food. It's, uh, this is, turns out to be an incredibly fascinating area and uh, really makes you rethink about everyday uh, objects you find in the kitchen in a new light. And it's particularly interesting for reader, uh, for listeners of the podcast because there is um, quite a few sections devoted to the Chinese history of cooking and the way uh, the Chinese consume food uh, as part of the culture. And I dare say that I have never heard a more succinct summary of what is distinct about the Chinese way of cooking compared to other cuisines uh, than in this book. So you guys should definitely 
read it and check it out. All right. Consider the fork. I will do that. B. Wilson, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, I have something a little uh, less erudite. I have recently started rewatching the first season of Deadwood, which is that masterpiece by David Milch, starring Ian McShane and Timothy Oliphant, and uh, an exquisite cast of grotesques who basically declaim the greatest lines of profane profundity in the whole history of television. I just love listening to this stuff. It's just great. Uh, so rewatch the first, at least the first two seasons, because they're, they're, they're just really terrific. My very strong heartfelt recommendation for you guys. And I did that without swearing. That's pretty good. Cause I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Ken Liu, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you both. Yeah, so check out Thanks, his. Ken. He's, he's, you've had quite a year. I mean, oh my God, uh, the Earth's End translation came out. Uh, your own second novel in in the Dandelion Dynasty series came out, and Invisible Planets came out, and, and one more too, right? I mean, your own collection. Uh, That's right, the Paper Menagerie and other stories. But definitely, people, uh, you know, folks are interested in Chinese science fiction outside of the Three Body series. They they can check out Invisible Planets, the anthology. This one is is nice in that it's a sampler of of some of the most interesting voices in contemporary Chinese science fiction. So you know there there are people that readers had probably heard from you, Stan Chen Chufan, who had been on the show before, uh, who I think writes some of the smartest, most witty, and incisive cultural commentary and critique absolutely uh, of China through through science fiction, and uh, Xia Jia, who writes uh, some wonderful, optimistic. Uh, lyrical and poetic uh, sci-fi that blends fantasy with it. And of course, you have Hao Jingfang, who won the Hugo this year. Uh, Hao Jingfang actually is an economist. And so oh, her, yeah, her style, she's, she's a macroeconomics analyst, a, a very high-powered one, too. Uh, this is uh, Hao Jingfang, somebody who in her day job does a lot of work with poverty relief and with advising China's state council. So she's a big deal. Well, her, her, her interest in, in income inequality or in social inequality in China is obvious in this short, short story. Yeah, absolutely. Novel absolutely. Opera. Yeah, and she's, uh, she's definitely somebody that readers should check out. And there are other, several other writers collected in the anthology, including Liu Cixin himself. And, and readers may not know this, but in a lot of ways, I think Liu Cixin's short fiction is, uh, is even better than his, uh, his novel-length work. Three Body is certainly amazing, but... He was a prolific short story writer before he became a novelist. And I think those short fiction uh, pieces are very much worth people's time. Well, congratulations on, on all your accomplishments this year. That's just um, unbelievable. And now I feel, you know, terribly inadequate. And don't you, Jeremy? <laughs> uh, yes. But of course, that, that's, that's, that's a recurring theme on this show. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thanks. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Absolutely. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Nat Ahrens for connecting us to Ken Liu. Thanks also to Anne Le Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.